Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for our host, Umbreen Khan. Each week we explore the beliefs shaping our world, including ones that fall outside the mainstream, beliefs that may be unsettling. If you remember the 1990s, you might remember the satanic panic, a belief that secret bands of occultists were engaging in what was called satanic ritual abuse to murder hundreds of children across the United States and Great Britain. Damien Eccles remembers it too well. He was one of the West Memphis Three, a trio of misfit teenagers with an interest in Wicca and a love of Metallica who were accused of the gruesome murders of three small boys in Arkansas in 1993. Despite zero physical evidence linking Eccles or his co-defendants, Jesse Miss Kelly and Jason Baldwin, to the murders, all three were convicted. Miss Kelly and Baldwin were sentenced to life in prison, and Eccles, who was 18 at the time, was sent to death row. The 1996 HBO documentary Paradise Lost, directed by Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky, captures the fear, anguish, and distrust that led the predominantly evangelical Christian community of West Memphis to believe the worst of its own people. In 2011, after revelations of new evidence, numerous appeals, and national attention from celebrities, all three boys— then men in their 30s, were released. Eccles, who married while incarcerated in a supermax prison, found himself going from eight years of solitary confinement on death row to Manhattan, literally overnight. After a rough period of adjustment, he began writing about his spiritual journey in prison, one that took him from his childhood Catholicism to an interest in earth-based paganism and the study of Buddhism. But what he credits with saving his sanity is what he calls magic. That's magic with a K on the end. A sort of New Age blend of meditation, prayer, and daily devotion. His newest book, released this summer, is Angels and Archangels, A Magician's Guide, and details some of the daily spiritual practices he developed in prison. I spoke with Eccles by phone from his apartment in Upper Manhattan, For listeners that may not be familiar with magic, it's actually not something that is a repudiation of other religions or an alternative, you know, like a take it or leave it Mm -hmm. uh, to other religions, but it's actually more of a companion to other religions. Could you explain that for our listeners? I think companion is a really good word to describe it. You know, when you're talking about magic, I think a lot of the negative connotations that come with magic just honestly come about because people just didn't know what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. It's like superstition that's been handed down where anything dealing with magic whatsoever automatically has to have some sort of dark connotation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's a really distorted picture of what these practices are and, and what I mean by how it helps us to understand other religions more. And when you're talking about magic, the actual technical term for high magic is astrotheurgy. 
and it came about from people watching the stars. And whenever you're starting to look at all these different religions through the lens of magic, you, it gives so much more depth to these stories. You know, for example, when you're talking about Jesus and the 12 disciples, you're talking about the sun and the 12 constellations of the zodiac. And, you know, when you're talking about the virgin birth, you're not actually talking about a girl who's never had sex. You're talking about the constellation of Virgo. If you understand magic, not only will it give you a much deeper uh, understanding and appreciation for all of the Western religions, but it also ties our understanding of how the universe works. In magic, we don't look at them as, as if any of these, like science does not, does not uh, uh, you know, try to do away with religion. We see them as they are meant to go hand in hand to help us understand the broader picture of where we came from, where we're going, and how we're supposed to get there. Can you walk mm -hmm. me through what that means? Is it casting a spell? Is it something, if I were to see you do, might look like meditation or prayer to me? Tell me what it looks like, what practicing magic looks like. To someone who didn't know what they were seeing, it would probably look like maybe a combination of Tai Chi and meditation or Taoism, you know, Taoist energy work. You are moving around the room. A lot of it is, is working with energy. When you learn magic, there's basically three steps that you go through. In the first order, this is where you learn all of the basic beginning rituals. And, and this entails things like the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, uh, the hexagram rituals, the rose cross ritual, the middle pillar. If you're familiar with theosophy at all and, and the teachings of H.P. Blavatsky, uh, she was this Russian mystic. Uh, one of her students was a man named Rudolf Steiner. He talked about how just as in order to perceive the physical world around us, we have eyes and ears and these sensory organs that allow us to take in all this information. So too do we also have energetic or what we would call spiritual organs of perception, which allow us to uh, interact and perceive much more subtle, higher levels of reality beyond just the hardcore concrete physical world. So in magic, a lot of what you're doing when you're learning these basic rituals in the first order is you are learning to develop these sensory perception organs. It's almost like doing calisthenics for your own energy system. You know, it greatly changes things like the way you think, the level of calmness you experience in the world. To explain it a little better for me, what drew me to it was, you know, I also received ordination in the Rinzai Zen tradition of Japanese Buddhism. I had a Zen master that would travel back and forth from Japan to the prison to teach me. And I honestly felt like I experienced more results from doing a few months of these rituals of ceremonial magic than I did from several years under the tutelage of a legitimate Japanese Zen master. For me, something about magic just clicked into place in a way that allowed me to see much more powerful results in a much shorter period of time. So that's what you're doing. You know, you're learning all these rituals in the first order. The second order, which comes next, you take all of these rituals that you learned in the first order and then start applying them in a practical way to do what we call attaining the knowledge and conversation of your holy guardian angel. Once you do that, 
once you make contact with this entity, this entity becomes your teacher and instructor. You will receive, the only word I know to use is downloads, that will work far more beneficially for you personally than anything you will find in books or other teachers will give you or or anything else. It's like you're led through the process. And then third order, the final order, after the attainment of the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel is what we call crossing the abyss. Crossing the abyss is the dissolution of self. That's where we experience the difference between experiencing the world through this individual dualistic lens and experiencing the world as pure infinite consciousness. The words that you use to describe this seem to share a lot of things with Buddhism. How is magic like Buddhism and different from Buddhism? Magic is very, very similar to Eastern tradition, not just Buddhism, but also Taoism. And even to some extent, some of the practices of Hinduism, you know, like the chakra system, uh, the energy work techniques, stuff like that. There is a lot of overlap between these practices. All magic is, and and really all, all Western religion, they are trying to teach us to do the exact same thing that these Eastern practices are trying to do, but they're showing us how to do it from a Western perspective, only using things that we are familiar with, you know, like uh, Judaic imagery and Christian imagery uh, and even Islamic or Muslim imagery, all of the Abrahamic religions, essentially. The practice of magic, does it share any characteristics with the practice of meditation. When you were describing it, you you said you're moving around the room and you said Tai Chi, and it made me think, oh, it's like a moving meditation. Is that a correct? Yes, that is exactly what it is. For example, I said one of the rituals that we learn is called the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. And usually, you know, pentagram is one of those words that when people hear it, it brings up all those spooky images. You know, That's that, a trigger that, word. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Now, what the pentagram actually represents in magic, the four lower points represent earth, air, fire, and water. Earth, air, fire, and water represent different aspects of our total being. So, for example, when you're talking about earth, you're talking about our hardcore flesh and blood physical bodies. When you're talking about air, air represents our intellect, our ability to use logic and reason to think our way through things. Water is our emotions, you know, anything to do with our Uh, unconscious, our subconscious, our love, anything emotional or deeply internal uh, is represented by water. Fire. Fire is our literal life force. It's our ambition, our drive, our creativity, all of that sort of thing. Well, the very top sphere, the very top point of the pentagram represents divinity. It represents the source, God, the divine mind, the place that everything came from and and to which everything will eventually one day return to. When you draw these pentagrams, you always start at the point of divinity and you draw the pentagram by tracing from divinity down into these other elements. The message that you're sending your unconscious mind is you are drawing God down into all of these other aspects of yourself. You know, when I was a kid growing up in the Catholic Church, 
they would tell us every single time you receive communion, you become a little more like Christ because you are literally ingesting this, this Christ energy. You're doing the exact same thing whenever you perform a ritual like the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram. Every time you do it, you are pulling a little more divinity down into every aspect of your being so that it changes you. I did not expect the book to be such a non-repudiation of other religions. It's like Buddhism. It's like Christianity. It's yes. like Judaism. I mean, the archangels themselves, some of them would be recognizable to Christians, to Catholics, to Jews, to Muslims, to Coptic Christians, to Zoroastrians. Absolutely. Tell me about the first time you believe you saw an angel. What did it look like? How did that happen? You first start using the four main archangels of the Western tradition, uh, Raphael, Mikael, Gabriel, and Uriel. You're sort of fenced in by them. You're surrounding yourself with angelic energy, angelic protection. When I was sitting by myself, I would just experience this sense of peace. It eventually reached a point where by the time I got out, I was so excited about what I was doing with this work that I wasn't even thinking about getting out most of the time. You know, I was completely and absolutely absorbed by, you know, what I had discovered was possible with this, these techniques. But, you know, when I start working with these four archangels, eventually it, it just sort of dawned on me one day. I thought, well, if four are good, then let's add some more and see what happens. <laughs> so I started doing all this research and finding, you know, like archangels that correspond to different energies on the tree of life. And you can find angels that correspond to just about anything if you dig deep enough. And I start adding those to the ritual. And the only way I can describe how this feels, it feels like you are putting on the armor of God. It feels Ooh. like you are encasing yourself in a suit of armor made out of angelic energy. That's why it gives you that sense of peace in, in your mind. I hadn't seen or, or experienced an angel yet, but I was experiencing that something is definitely happening here. This stuff is doing something to me. And I want more of it. I want to see what else is possible. When I say that I saw something, I don't mean with my physical eyes. I mean mm. with whatever energetic faculty we register these other levels of reality with. Suddenly, as I'm about halfway through this ritual, I, the only way I can describe this is I knew I was not alone. I knew to the core of my soul something is here. And the only way I can articulate what I perceived is it looked almost like two triangles that were overlapping. But, you know, there's no facial features, there's no wings, there's no appendages, none of this sort of stuff. But I knew to the core of my being that this thing is just as sentient and aware of me as I am of it. If I would have not been locked in a prison cell, I would have ran. Every hair on your body stands up. This is why in the Bible, like the angels always tell people, be not afraid, be not afraid, because it has that effect on you. Now, when you say seen, do you mean actually seen with your physical eyes, or is it something like in Hinduism or, or other Eastern religions, the third eye that the 
pineal eye in the middle of that's supposedly in yes. the middle of your forehead. It's more like a sensing. Yes, that's that's exactly what it is. I could look at the spot where I'm perceiving this thing with my physical eye, and I would not see anything there. But if I sit with my eyes closed and allow my mind to go silent, flatline, there was no doubt in my mind that even sitting there in this cell on death row waiting for these people to murder me, there is an angel in this cell. I felt safe. I mm. felt like as scary as it may be to perceive something that is so far outside of your normal frame of reference, still, you know that if something like this is with me, looking out for me, you know, it's like somebody said one time, when God says yes, it doesn't matter how many people say no. That was the feeling I had in that cell. It was as if God had said yes to me, as if God had said, you're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. I've got you. And this is the proof of that. You were in a very perilous situation on death row. What did you ask these beings for then? What do you ask them for? Or how is your relationship with them different now? I would say, protect me, you know, keep me mm. from harm. Uh, get me home safe with my family. Don't let these people kill me. Somebody asked me one time, they said, if you have the job you want and you're doing okay financially and your family is safe and you're living in the house you want to live in and there's nothing particularly out of order in your life, there's nothing distressing, what do you do magic for then? And I said, that's when the real work actually begins. What you start doing magic for then and what I ask the angels for is in Buddhism, they call this process enlightenment. In magic, we call it completing the great work. So what you start asking for is you say, let your power, your blessings, and your favor descend upon me so that I may complete the great work within this lifetime. May it come about in a way that brings harm to none and is for the good of all, and in no way let this reverse or bring upon me any curse. So basically what you start asking them for is wake me up, allow me to discover what I am here for. We all have a very specific purpose. And part of why we're here is to discover what that purpose is and, and pursue it. Well, Damien, that begs the question, what has your practice of magic led you to believe your purpose for being here is? It's sharing these practices with other people, you know, not converting people, not trying to convince them or proselytize or, you know, tell anybody else this is the right way and everything else is wrong, you know, because magic takes a lot of discipline, a lot of commitment. We all have our own unique, specific gift that we're supposed to be employing to, to shape the world and change the world in some way. But underlying all of that, the ultimate reason for life is to love and be loved. That was Damien Eccles, author of Angels and Archangels, A Magician's Guide, on his spiritual path of magic. Eccles was wrongly convicted for murder and sentenced to death. He endured 17 years in prison, much of it in solitary confinement. When we come back, Eccles explains why turning his cell into a monastery saved him. This is Inspired. Stay with us. 
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for host Umbreen Khan. Our guest is Damian Eccles, one of the West Memphis Three, who was wrongly convicted for the 1993 murders of three small boys. Eccles spent 17 years on death row in a supermax prison, eight of it in solitary confinement. That was when he began a spiritual practice called Magic a meditation-like ritual that involves calling on angels and archangels for help. Let's get back to my conversation with Eccles as he describes the effect of isolation on his mind and the evolution of his beliefs. For the last eight years I was in prison, I was in complete and total solitary confinement with the exception of I was allowed to have one visitor a week for three hours and uh, my wife would come see me once a week for three hours. That was the only human interaction that I had with anyone who wasn't part of the system that was trying to put me to death. Being human comes from interacting with other people. When you eliminate that from the equation, you become incredibly stagnant. You start to decay internally almost from the moment you're there. But it also, there's an overlap, not just in the spiritual aspect of it. Every aspect of our being overlaps with every other aspect of our being. You can't just separate the spiritual from the physical or the mental or the emotional or anything else because they're all so deeply interwoven and dependent upon each other. But for example, whenever I got out of prison, I started working with a psychologist who wanted to study the long-term effects of isolation, solitary Mm -hmm. confinement on the human brain. So they were using me for that study. And, you know, we didn't realize that, like, for example, I had lost things like voice recognition or facial Mm. recognition because you don't see faces, you don't hear voices. It caused such devastating, uh, not just psychological trauma, but literally like neural pathway trauma 
that it changed the way my brain was hardwired. And we didn't realize the difficulty that was going to cause until after I was released back out into the world. You think getting off a of death row is the end. It's the finish line. It's, it's where we're trying to get to. You don't think about the fact that there's going to be something else beyond that. So when we did get to that finish line, we're thinking it's the happily ever after, the happy ending to the story. We didn't realize that when I came out of prison, it was going to psychologically, emotionally, and, and spiritually devastate me just as much as going into prison did. I have very few memories of the first two years I was out of prison. I've been out almost, actually on August 19th, I've been out nine years. And I cannot even remember the first two years because I was in such a deep state of shock and trauma and trying to adjust to normal life. My original question was, what does isolation do to the spirit? You answered that. And in your answer, you said getting out of prison was, among other things, spiritually devastating. Well, you know, when I first went into prison, a guy told me, you got two choices. You can either end up like the rest of these guys or you can turn your cell into a monastery and you can come up with ways to deliberately make yourself grow and learn and expand your consciousness, keep growing as a person. So that's what I tried to the best of my ability to do. The day before I walked out of prison, I had worked my way up to doing these rituals about eight hours a day. My spirituality was the focal point of my existence. It was the anchor that in that environment was sort of keeping me sane and, and allowing me to operate. Well, whenever I got out, I literally went from solitary confinement to the streets of Manhattan overnight. And it did something to me coming out of solitary confinement. Like, you know, I had read on average, I would say like maybe five books a week. The day that I walked out of prison, I could not read anymore. I would read the same page over and over and over and could not retain the information. I would introduce myself to the same person over and over and over because I could not retain their faces or, you know, conversations that we had had or, or anything else. And even like right now, I completely forgot where I was going with this, what we were even talking about. That's okay. I'm struck by the fact that when we think about practicing magic, I mean, most neo-pagan faiths and pagan faiths have a lot to do with nature. I can't think of anywhere that's less natural than where you said you live in Manhattan. So how do you cope with New York City and how do you find that aspect of magic in New York City? Oh, I think this is the most magical place I have ever been in my life. Oh, how? I had a friend one time that told me, this was a, another practicing magician, and he said, if you want fine, beautiful, amazing, meaningful things in your life, then go to places that has those kind of things. Surround yourself with things that have that kind of energy, because energy is contagious. Well, when you're talking about places here, like in New York City, you're talking about some of the oldest and most beautiful cathedrals in North America that you can just walk into at any time and sit and bathe, literally bathe in the energy 
of faith and belief and hope. Or think about going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You have every temple from every faith in the world, like not reconstructions, but the actual temples have been taken up from Egypt and put down into this building. You've got places that have been taken from ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Sumer, and put in here. You've got these ancient Buddhist temples and relics all in one building. And I always tell people just because these items have been moved, that doesn't mean they stopped working. These Hmm. things are still doing what these people designed them to do. Energy also comes from, you know, there's, there's a million different kinds of energy. Think about a place like, say, Times Square, which is the crossroads of the universe. You have people coming from every country, every religion, every spirituality, every belief system, all in this, this small few block radius, creating this tremendous force of, of energy there. And also you take into account things like ley lines, you know, like the energy of the earth itself, just like we have veins and arteries that carry blood through our bodies. We also have meridians that carry chi or energy to different parts of our bodies. And the earth has these things too. We call them ley lines. And that's why whenever they started building Manhattan, it became this empire. It took on a life of its own and just exploded with vibrancy and chaos and movement and color and and energy. I mean, when you walk out your door onto the street in the morning, it is like walking into no other place in the world. And do you do that often? Do you go to the Met and go into the rooms that have the things from ancient Sumer or Mesopotamia or Egypt? Yes. Up until the lockdown, I did it every single day. I even started doing tours at the Met. I would take people through and give them tours and describe to them the history of magic, where this comes from, how it evolved over time. Just for example, like on the cover of Angels and Archangels, you'll see an ancient Sumerian depiction that they call the Lamasu. It's a lion, an eagle, a bull, and a man. Those are the four fixed signs of the Zodiac. The lion is Leo, The bull is Taurus, the man is Aquarius, and the eagle, most people when they think of Scorpio think of a scorpion, but also the eagle and the phoenix are symbols of Scorpio. We see these things mentioned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The prophet Ezekiel calls them the four living creatures, and he says he sees them pulling a chariot to the throne of God skip ahead thousands of years later to St. John writing the book of Revelation, and he sees these four living creatures are standing around the throne of God weeping and saying, who can open the scrolls? No one can be found who can open the scrolls. What that means is we will reach a time in human history where people will not remember this stuff anymore. They won't know how to interpret it, If you look at the Renaissance master's paintings of Christ, a lot of times in all four corners of these paintings, you will see a lion, a bull, an eagle, and a man. It was the same information being passed down through all of these different religions, just packaged in a different way. I practically lived in the Met amongst these items. Uh, You know, just to, to me, it was like being in church. This is our history as a species. It made me realize that most people weren't even understanding or taking in what they were seeing in the museum. And I thought, if I could start explaining to people how all of this is one giant puzzle piece and show them the effect that it has on you, then I think it would change the way other people saw places like this too. 
one day I decided tomorrow I'm going to start doing tours at the Met. And for the next year, almost every single day, I would take people into the Met, take them through these temples and through these exhibitions and tell them exactly what they were seeing and how it tied into spirituality and, and Western culture and the Abrahamic religions and all of that sort of stuff. I would argue that Christianity had a role in your conviction and being sent to death row because people in your town misunderstood your interest as a teenager in Wicca, your interest in Metallica, and because it was the 1990s, it was part of that whole satanic panic. I cannot help but be stunned by how in the course of our interview you have spoken of Christian things, the excitement in your voice when you talk to me about the New Testament, the Old Testament, I would have thought that Christianity would be the last thing you'd be interested in at this point after what happened to you. I'm surprised even that you would want to walk into a cathedral right now. So explain that to me. What do you feel when you walk into St. John the Divine after having spent 18 years of your 46 years on earth on death row, wrongfully convicted, largely because of the Christian paradigm that was applied to your case? Honestly, I feel home. I feel a sense of this is where I want to be. This is where matters. Yeah, I could be doing something like, say, sitting down in Soho somewhere, or I could be in this place surrounded by these deeply meaningful, beautiful, energy-packed places and items and, and it got to the point for me where, honestly, that's all I started doing. You know, I've probably been to every cathedral in Manhattan and, and not just the Christian cathedrals. I've, I've been to the, you know, the Buddhist temples. And like mm-hmm. I said, for me, the museum, the cloisters, when you're talking about the cloisters, you are talking about a literal monastery that Rockefeller took apart in Europe and brought over here and reassembled so that we can walk the halls of a place that people who dedicated their entire lives to have a relationship that brought them closer and closer to divinity, you know, they spent centuries in this place doing that, leaving the residue of that kind of energy behind. So if I have the choice between going and immersing myself into that level of beauty, that level of meaning, and that kind of energy versus something like just going and, you know, wasting time sitting at an ice cream shop or whatever it is, those are the places that I'm going to go to. This is where I need to be. This is what's important. You had an art show a while back. I think it was painting. What kind of medium are you working in now? What kind of media, I guess, uh, do you work in now? And how does the creation of art form a link between you and magic? One of my inspirations, you know, going back to like the old masters, you know, when you're talking about people like Botticelli, he worked hand in hand with Marsilio Ficino. He wanted to magically create something called a talisman, 
a talisman could be anything from like a natural thing, like a crystal to a design that we have created. But the, the whole purpose of a talisman is to house energy so that anything or anyone who comes in contact with it is affected by the energy that it's sort of exuding. Botticelli did the same thing with his artwork. He wanted to make it so that if you stood in front of his Venus painting and contemplated it for any you know, length of time, it would have an effect on the unfolding of your consciousness. Keep in mind, in all of these ancient times, art was something completely different than it is now. Like starting in ancient Mesopotamia, all the way up until the Renaissance, art was considered like a vehicle to crystallize and pass on information. I wanted to do the same thing whenever I was doing art exhibits. I wanted to put as much energy, and, and it was almost always uh, using angels. Like I would create what I called talismans. They were paintings uh, of a lot of really abstract symbols that were meant to house the energies of particular archangels so that whether people knew it or not, when they're walking through these exhibits, once again, it's almost like an act of communion. You are receiving this energy. It's having an effect on you, even if you don't realize it at first. We've been speaking with Damien Eccles about the spiritual practice he developed while spending eight years in solitary confinement on death row before being released in 2011. Eccles's new book about his practice is Angels and Archangels, A Magician's Guide. When we come back after a short break, we'll explore the origins of the magic Eccles writes about with Dr. Nathan Bjorgi, a scholar of esoteric religious beliefs. This is Inspired. Stay with us. This is Inspired. I am your host this week, Kimberly Winston. This week we are exploring the spiritual transformation and survival of Damien Eccles. Wrongly convicted of murder, he spent 17 years on death row, most of that time in isolation. In his new book, Eccles shares the rituals he used to invoke and enlist angels to help him survive that ordeal and that he continues to practice today. I reached out to Dr. Nathan Bjorgi, an independent scholar who studies esoteric religious practices, especially those that stem from Aleister Crowley, an early influence on Eccles, a fact used against him in his trial. When Damien was in prison, he began the practice of what he calls magic, magic with a K at the end. Explain to me what that means. How common is that? Is that something that he made up or is that something that is a known practice? Well, it's a specifically a technical term. It refers to Aleister Crowley's specific philosophy or practice of magic. He spelled magic with the K at the end. What that means is that he's identifying himself as part of a British magical tradition in the English Renaissance. Certain types of angel magic were practiced where 
people with, with a showstone or a scry stone have visions of angels and commune with them to gain theological or other kinds of information. American practitioners who are working within this particular historical tradition of magic will often spell with a K to link it to these earlier European antecedents because they're using texts and practices that some of which derive from that time. When he says, I'm doing angel magic, what exactly does that mean? One thing that it might not necessarily mean is that he or other practitioners of this type would be traditional monotheistic theists in a recognizably Christian mainstream sense, that the existence of angels as spiritual beings that are encountered in the experience of the magician don't necessarily commit the magician to a specifically Christian context or worldview. Crowley, in particular, very much emphasizes a kind of skeptical procedure that the magician is supposed to uh, practice as a kind of magical scientific method. What he means by that is to practice in experimental skepticism in a kind of practical or pragmatic way, the wisdom or gnosis that they get, the information they're getting from this that gives meaning to their life, rather than the meaning of the ritual being that they're in contact with supernatural beings and then, isn't it so wonderful that supernatural beings exist and we can have faith in them and then that's the meaning of the ritual. Crowley has the idea that there's a particular high magical practice that when you become adept at communicating with these angels, you can communicate with an angel that's specifically the angel of you. It's called the holy guardian angel. It's an angel that's like your Holy Spirit. And that this would be the deepest kind of personal gnosis or knowledge that you could be deriving from the practice of magic. When Damien was a teenager, it was generally known, it came out in the trial somehow, that he had read something by Aleister Crowley. He had an interest in Wicca. You know, most teenage boys are interested in some sort of wizardry, that kind of thing. And it was used against him, and it fed into that whole, as you called it, the satanic panic. Is there anything satanic about an interest in Aleister Crowley and Wicca? Well, it depends what you mean by Satan. Satan is a symbol. It's an archetype. There's a kind of avant-garde, poetic and artistic tradition that looks to Satan or Lucifer like you would look to a figure like Zeus as a god of kingship or Athena as a goddess of wisdom. In a kind of pagan polytheistic way, you would look to, to Satan as a figure representing human liberation. In that sense, being interested in Satanism as a teenager is subversive because it places you in a position where you're challenging the given social order, Christianity in particular. You're identifying yourself with the figure that is the enemy of Christianity, of the given social norms. And so the particular passage that uh, Damien read in court was specifically a passage in Crowley's book, Magic and Theory and Practice, which was published in the early 30s, in which he's talking about sex magic through a kind of metaphor where it seems that he's talking about sacrificing babies, but what he's really talking about is um, seminal ejaculation where there's not pregnancy, and that you could use that as a kind of magical technique to generate energy, where rather than having an impregnation where you would have a physical child, you would create a magical child instead. Now, what's interesting about that, and very important actually, is that this association of child sacrifice with scapegoating is not innocent at all. It's very much tied to anti-Semitism 
and specifically what's called the blood libel, which is Christians accused Jews in the Middle Ages of kidnapping and murdering Christian babies. And so in Damien's case, what was occurring is that even though he's not himself Jewish, he was being, in a sense, treated as if he were a Jew. The kind of scapegoating function that Damien was being persecuted with, it's a very old form of racism. Is that something that we are seeing reflected now in the QAnon conspiracy theory, the belief that there is this secret cabal of Democrats who operate under the pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. and perform child sacrifice? Yes, definitely yes. And in fact, George Soros, who's a Holocaust survivor and a Jew, is, is the primary conspirator. The mindset that sent these three boys to life in prison and in Damien's case, death row in Arkansas in the 90s, it's still with us, correct? Oh, yes. And that's why it's all the more important that Damien is publishing this book. And I think that the kind of magical paradigm that he is advocating uh, is perhaps a powerful tool of resistance to this kind of fascism. These kinds of magical practices help to liberate the human imagination so that it can become more creative and flexible. Damien is carrying on the cause of to bring this type of magical philosophy into play as some kind of liberative tool. I was shocked that someone who spent almost two decades in prison because of a dominant Christian paradigm that could not understand him and so put him away, that he did not reject those things. How common is that? attitude among those who practice magic and other forms of neo-pagan faith? This is not only very common among magical practitioners, but in a way is the whole point of kind of practicing magic as a synthetic thing, which is that you're trying to learn from everybody else. You're trying to do some yoga, do some Buddhist meditation, see what's going on in Sufism, maybe experiment with some prayer in that context do Jewish Kabbalah, uh, take a look at medieval Christian mysticism. Damien is 46 years old, so he's squarely in the in Gen X. How common is Damien's approach for a person of his generation in the sense that he takes a little bit of Catholicism with this angel, he takes a little bit of Judaism with that. It's a little bit of everything. And I wondered how typical is that of a person who is from that generation? I think that type of experience or eclectism is becoming more common. Mm. I'm about roughly the same age as um, Damien. And when I was growing up, all you had to do was go to your local library and there'd be all these um, Llewellyn publications, books on witchcraft there that were very easy to get a hold of. Most 16-year-olds had read the Satanic Bible and thought that it was the coolest book in the world. I think that the witchcraft panic kind of shifted and ended in a way in the late 90s. And part of the reason for that was because Wicca went pop with television shows particularly Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but a lot of other stuff too. It became culturally mainstream to be a witch in a way that it became a market category. Right. And unfortunately, Damien's arrest occurs before that had culturally occurred. He was still very much in the shadow of the 80s era satanic panic, which was taken very seriously, unfortunately, by uh, a number of people. 
And these types of popular obsessions, they wax and they wane. Am I hearing you say that we are less in danger of misunderstanding those who practice magic at this point than we were 20 years ago when it happened to Damien? Are there any other groups that we are in danger of treating the way we treated those kinds of quote-unquote spiritual yes. misfits back then? Yes, thank you for asking that. Even though many of these tensions remain in play, the terrain now is totally different. And so having your neighbor arrested to pin some murder on as a way to play out these particular prejudices is maybe not quite exactly how it's going to happen. Today, it would be more that you would put a ski mask on and drive in your pickup and machine gun some protesters, that that would be what you would do instead. I think that right now, one group that is particularly in danger is uh, trans people, particularly trans persons of color. And I think also that uh, Muslims in American society are, I think, very threatened just generally. And I hate to be so obvious about this, but Black people generally are majorly being targeted right now. Here we are again with them being the group that's being targeted. Let me ask you one final question. What does the practice of magic have to say to our current COVID divided crisis moment? What Damien offers with the kind of magic that he's, uh, that he's teaching, that he's presenting in his work, is the idea that we can ultimately heal ourselves, that we can remember or re- reconstruct ourselves. It's as if what COVID and the quarantine and the other political problems that are occurring right now, we've been dismembered. And so the great work of magic would be to remember remember these, these dismembered parts so that we can remember who we're supposed to be as a people. We all deserve equal protection under the law and all these all these things that are part of our liberal enlightenment heritage. And the challenge is, can those values be remembered? And perhaps, just perhaps, a certain type of magic may be helpful for us at this time. That was Dr. Nathan Bjorgi, a recent alumnus of the Graduate Theological Union at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Bjorgi is an expert on Western esoteric religions, including magic, which is practiced by our first guest, Damien Eccles. Eccles was one of the West Memphis Three and spent 17 years on death row for three murders he did not commit. He is the author of Angels and Archangels, A Magician's Guide, which was released this summer by Sounds True. Inspired as a production of Interfaith Voices and was produced by me, Kimberly Winston, Kevin McCarthy, and Umbreen Khan. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music and our founder, Maureen Fiedler. To hear this full episode and explore our archives, visit interfaithradio.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and to the podcast. I am Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for host Umbreen Khan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.